Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We looked last week at the preface or the, the short statement in verse 2 when God gives the Ten Commandments, that summary of the moral law of what is unalterably pleasing or displeasing to God. So let's read that passage again. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, speaking of the whole scene there at Mount Sinai. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you. And in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> our gracious King, we come to set our hearts, our lives, our thoughts, everything, everything we have, everything you've given to us, we lay it open before you now, not just as individuals or as a family, a, a couple, but God as a church. You are our 
all and in all. And every believer has tasted and seen that you really are good. That you are the life of those who have lost everything for you. Who have handed over their pretended self-rule and their rights. And have thrown in the dirt their righteousness as well as their sins. And have run to your throne. To the mercy seat. To meet you at the bloody cross and find hope. We come to you this morning, God, not because we're spiritual people who, more than others, realize how much we owe you and we're willing to give it, but we come because we are weak, just as weak as every other person has ever been or ever will be, Adam's fallen, helpless race. But you loved us when we were enemies, and you sent your son to die For the helpless and the sinner. So we come. We bring our praises to you on the first day of this week. We worship you on the day that Christ, your son, was raised by you from the dead. To demonstrate once and for all that you were pleased with his sacrifice. That unlike all the Old Testament sacrifices, it was not a symbolic thing. It wasn't a picture of something greater to come. But it actually accomplished what you said it would accomplish. He became sin. That we might know what it is to be made right with you. The righteousness of God provided in him. So we ask that having made us right. Having awakened us. That every believer here this morning would delight with such a triumphant confidence. And the kind of freedom that only children of great parents could feel. Would you give us all we need to run the race, to obey your will, to gladly do all that pleases you just because it pleases you. Help us as we attempt to worship you, as we sing again, as we look in the word, as we talk to each other during lunch. God, we feel so inadequate for these things. It just goes against everything that we thought and did growing up. We, we're perfect, well-suited at making everything about us, but to live for you, to think of other people, for that we need your continual saving work. God, we pray that you would receive all the worship due to you from your people across this tiny world, and we ask that your kingdom would spread, that new men and women, new young people, would look to you for the very first time, conquered by an unexpected friendship from the king that they lived against, and with great joy, hand it all to you. We ask for those in our fellowship that are isolated by illness, and sorrows that perhaps no one else knows. We do think of those that we're aware of. We think particularly of Greg Elder and and John Montague. We think of their wives and their families. God, would you use even the most difficult of these times to do them good that doesn't fade, that never can be undone by an enemy? We pray that their doctors 
would know exactly what to do. But God, we pray that you, the sole physician, would act. As we look at your word this morning, God, will you teach us? You are infinitely the blessed one. And we want you to be our teacher so that our feet will be set on a path of loving obedience, not on legalism, not drifting in our self-indulgence. We want to be followers of Christ in more than just words for his everlasting honor. And we ask it in his name. Amen. We've been talking about how to approach the rule of our God. We belong to a God, whether it is just by creation or whether we have the added motivation of his gracious rescue. We belong to a God who is moral. It's not, he's not an it. He's not a cosmic force. He's not just a, an all-wise designer who has kind of set us on the right course and let us make our own choices. But he is a person, and he's a moral person. C.S. Lewis's arguments in Mere Christianity, the first half of the book, more so than the second half, are very helpful in how he shows that, obviously, we were created by a person. And this person has morality, because we're persons, and we have morality. Every person on the planet has a morality. Whether it's an accurate morality or not doesn't matter. We feel certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And God has spelled out what is right and what is wrong. He has, in a sense, it's like he's, he's shown this spotlight through his character. And it's shining down on us in ten great summary statements, the Ten Commands. And we're looking at that because these are the things that the Lord Jesus delighted in. That he said they were written on his heart. He must be about his father's business. He did not come to do his own will. He delighted to do the will of the father. So if we're going to follow Christ, it's more than just loving each other. And it's more than just believing the statements he made and following the, uh, the teachings of Christ. It's also following the pattern of Christ. And much of that is summarized in the Ten Commandments. So we're going to take some time as a church to look at that. Last week, we looked just at that opening statement in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And this is the only appropriate entrance to every act of obedience to God. It doesn't matter where the command is found. This is the entrance for you. There is a living God and he has been gracious. For the Christian, looking at the picture of our rescue in the rescue of Israel out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of a land of spiritual darkness. I brought you out of the house of slavery. If you skip the introduction in verse 2. And you, in, you know, American fashion, jump right to the commands and say, okay, let's get to it. I imagine some of you are a bit frustrated at the very slow pace we've taken as we're walking up to the moral commands of God. And you might be more frustrated next week. But 
I'm not really worried about that because if we don't understand how God intends us to approach the law, the angle from which you view the law, the, the way that affects your attitudes and your thoughts and your choices, if we don't get on the right path, then you will never obey God in a way that pleases God. You remember last week we mentioned the two extremes of error. You know, there's the legalism, like, like the life of a Pharisee, always talking about right and wrong and, and God's rules and how everybody else is breaking them. But you yourself really only appearing to love the law of God, only appearing to do what he says. And like the Pharisees, God searching your heart gives the same assessment. Anybody that follows you, they're going to be twice as bad off as before they met you. And your religion is worthless. To be near God with our mouths, far from him in our heart. So legalism is is an example of a wrong approach. Then there's antinomianism, which is from, you know, I guess the Latin word, you know, anti, namas, or the Greek, to be against the law. To be a person that says, because we're saved by grace, the Bible clearly teaches that the law has been set aside. Didn't Jesus obey it? Didn't Jesus satisfy it? Didn't he suffer its curse? Didn't he say that, that the truth makes us free? Didn't he warn them through Paul and Galatians not to go back under that slavery? And if you read kind of quickly those passages, it does look like all that Paul has to say about law is pretty bad. Now, that's not accurate, but that's kind of the feeling you get. And so you say, well, if I'm saved by grace, then that means his obedience provides a righteousness for me. Therefore, obeying the law is not essential. It's optional. And if you want to do that, I admire you. But if you don't want to do that, it's okay. So whether we're the kind of people that say, we're Christians, we go to church, we're good people, we keep the rules, and that's all we want to talk about, or we're the kind of people that say, we're Christians, we go to church, we're saved by grace, we don't have any rules. Both of those errors are wrong at the same point. In fact, they're wrong there in Exodus chapter 20. Well, at which point? Is it, is it the Sabbath? That's where a lot of disagreement comes. But it's actually not that command where they're wrong. They are both wrong at the same place. They're both wrong at verse 2. They fail to understand how important verse 2 is so that they would have in their hearts and minds the right view of obedience. And so we want to return there today and we want to take that simple statement that we looked at last week and kind of add to it. We want to take this statement. I am the Lord, your God. If you can be gripped by what God says in, the, in that simple statement, and if you could go from Genesis to Revelation and take all the teaching of the Bible, and this would be a lifelong pursuit, and pack what the Bible says about God into that little phrase, I am the Lord, 
your God than Christian, you would have what you need to understand why you obey and how you obey and everything about the Ten Commandments in your uh, approach to them would be recalibrated. A cheerful, excited, confident, triumphant anticipation would be in your mind when you wake up tomorrow morning and think, I am saved to walk with a living God. That means I get to walk in sweet and childlike obedience and to enjoy his nearness. Just like John 15 talks about. If we love him, we obey him. And then in chapter 14, and then in John chapter 15, you remember verse 9, 10, and 11. Abide in my love as I have abided in my Father's love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you want to enjoy the warmth of the unexpected and undeserved friendship of God constantly aimed at your little existence, walk in simple submission. But it's one thing to say that. It's quite another thing to do it. And because there has been so, misun- so much misunderstanding, I-, I think that we would want to have some examples. And that's what we'll look at this morning. It's one thing to hear principles where a person says, do you understand this? And we say, okay, I understand. And do you understand this? I understand. So we don't just have a list of rules. We have the principles or why these rules are there, how they make sense. Okay, that's good. But there is, there is something else you're given. You are also given examples. Examples in the scripture where you get to watch a person like you come to the God of the Bible, look at the commands of God, at the word of God, at the principles of God, at the statutes of God, at the judgments of God, his decisions, at his testimonies, and say to him, I am yours. You're mine. You are the God that rescued me. You are the Lord, my God. I will follow you. But what's it look like? So what we want to do this morning is something really, I think it's very simple unless I muddle it up. And here's what we want to do. We want to look at kind of two different things. One is I want us to look at a familiar passage that we've looked at before. And in this familiar passage, we're going to see an example of a believer looking at God and responding to God's word in a way that I think is such a perfect, balanced, simple, direct example of Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a house of slavery. Now what do I do with that verse? Well, I want us to look at an example of a believer, and that's found in Psalm 119. Actually, it's the homework for the Psalm 119 group this week, but that's not why we're doing it. In Psalm 119, verse 57, and then 58, 59, and 60, we find the believer looking at the God who is behind all his moral commands and seeing God for who he is, he responds. I think those simple four verses, Psalm 119, 57, 58, 59, and 60 are a perfect example of how Exodus 20, verse 2 
ought to impact you as you face his law. Then what we're going to do, so we'll look at that in a second. Then what we're going to do is we're going to need to look at some very simple pictures of the Lord who is our portion, of the Lord who is our God, and we're going to try to remind ourselves of all that that means. We're only going to have time to look at a few examples. And I hope that the examples will stir your heart to say what the psalmist says. I have promised to keep your word. I will seek your favor. I will pay attention to where my feet are on the path. And I will quickly walk the path that you've put in front of me. I'll get onto that path if I'm off. Now, to do that, we're going to look again at familiar passages. So there won't be anything new for most of us this morning. I just want us to take uh, one week together to kind of look at an example of how you might stir your heart so that you don't become the Pharisee and you don't become the self-indulged person who talks about grace but has never been changed by grace. Well, look at Psalm 119 and verse 57. So the psalmist is writing, and you know the psalm. We talked about this actually on a Wednesday night, maybe about a year ago. And I do think it's one of the simplest summaries of how we approach God's all-authoritative book. In verse 57, the psalmist makes a statement about God and about himself. And then in verse 58, 59, and 60, we find what flows out of that statement. So here's the basic statement. Verse 57, the Lord, the I am, you see those capital letters, Yahweh or Jehovah, the, the one who always has been and always will be timeless, self-existing, is my portion. I have promised he says directly to God, to keep your words. And then he follows, I have sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. I have considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. Now we've already looked at that passage. And so today we're just going to mention it. And then we're going to look at the pictures of who this Lord is. That is the portion of the believer. Well, let's talk about a portion. What is a portion? Well, we all understand that. If you say, if you're in a part of a large family and you say, this is my portion, what do you mean? You mean, well, this is what the parents gave to me. This is mine. All right, I have a right to it. This can't be taken away from me. This is something that belongs to me. I have a legitimate right to it. And the happiness of your life depends upon the portion. Is your portion a good portion? Is it something that makes you happy? Is it a large portion? Is it something that makes you happy and doesn't run out? Because things that make us very happy but are limited and they, we know they're running out. You know, as soon as you get it and you're happy, you start to count how quickly it's running out, you know. So if it's an inheritance, you start to spend it and you get the, you know, the monthly statements or you, you check your bank account on your phone and you see it dwindle. 
And it's kind of ruined by the sense that this doesn't go on forever. You need a portion that is a good portion. You need a portion that is so large you won't run out. And you need a portion that someone would give to a person like you that is good and large. So there's our problem. Why does the psalmist need a portion? Because like us, he has nothing in himself, nothing that he can do that would satisfy his life. Because of sin entering in, our portion is so bitter. But even if we were not sinners, even even if we were with Adam and Eve before sin entered into humanity, a paradise kind of life, you would still need a portion that you can't provide. All created beings are constantly dependent upon God to supply what they can't supply. You can't make yourself happy. You can't find anything in this created order that would make you happy. You don't know a person that can make you happy. You can't imagine an event that will make you happy. You can't purchase or earn something that will make you happy. At least it will not be a good and large portion that you have a right to. So the psalmist says, the Lord, the I am, the uncreated creator, the triune God is my portion. That's quite a shocking statement. He could have said something like this. I know that the world doesn't give me enough to make me happy. And I know that I can't find anything in me that would make me happy. I mean, if you doubt that, you can just read Ecclesiastes where the world's wealthiest, wisest, most clever king who has everything at his fingertips at the end of his book says it's just so empty apart from God. So the psalmist could say, I I agree. This is emptiness. God gave me a portion. It's good. Like him. It doesn't change when he gives it to us. It's large and doesn't run out. But that is not what the psalmist says. In verse 57, he says, The Lord, the I am, is my portion. The I am is what has been given to me. The I am is my portion, my sustaining source of life. He and he alone is my portion. When we talk about a portion, we use that word in a way that's different than just saying, does this belong to you? So what's the difference between a a portion and a possession? We say, well, is this yours? You know, we have a lost and found and it fills up every once in a while. And then Charlotte will put it all on the table there and remind us to pick up our stuff. If you go up and you see a casserole dish that belongs to your wife and you pick it up and you go to take it home, someone might say, oh, that's yours. I didn't know whose that was. But they won't say, oh, is that your portion? <laughs> you say, well, well, it's, it's my wife's casserole dish. Yeah, it's ours. We bought it. We were given it. It's, it's my possession. You can have a lot of possessions, but when we think of the word portion in this way, you only have one. 
What is your portion? You don't get a lot of portions. What is it that you grab hold of with both hands because it's life? And for the psalmist, God himself. And that's true for every believer. And that is at the heart of being able to say what follows. The Lord is, he himself is mine. He is not a possession. It's not just a relationship. Like Paul says, he is my life. He is my all and in all. And having him as my portion. I have a portion that is without flaw. And I have a portion that is without end. And I have a right to a good, endless portion. Because he gave himself to me. Now, when that is grabbed by faith, in other words, when you don't live on your feelings as a believer, but you live on what the scripture says about your king, then that changes everything about obedience. It changes how you look at the next sentences. In Psalm 119, it's how you enter Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God. Yes, we say. The believer says, I have come to that God. I came even though I sinned against him. I was his enemy. I was the one that denied his existence or tried to warp his word so that it was all about me rather than him. I was the one that used church to make me a better me. I would have bent and used the uncreated God as my servant. But he opened my eyes. And I saw my sin. And I wanted to run as far from a holy God as I could. But he showed me the cross. And so I ran to him. To the one person I had lived against. To the one person who should and can everlastingly damn me. But I ran toward him. And he, like he promised, met me. In the finished work of his son. And I handed everything I am to him. And I grabbed everything he explains about salvation through his son. For me. And he became my portion. I am the Lord your God. Yes. You are my portion. And then what follows. Is easy. Or natural. I have sworn to keep your word. I have sworn allegiance to this Lord. I will plead with you daily to give me what I need. Your favor, your grace. I need you each moment. And I will set my feet quickly on the path of obedience. There is no way you can be a Pharisee if you approach the law like that. And there is no way you can be a self-indulgent grace talker if you approach the authority of God like that. But the impact of that simple statement, I am the Lord your God, and your response, the Lord is my portion. The impact that that has will be in direct relationship to your faith and your clarity about the biblical picture of God. In other words, 
If God is little and you say the Lord is my portion, but your view of God is a very unbiblical small. If you are okay with the scanty thought, the small ideas of God, then that has relatively small impact on what you think and desire and choose. But as a Christian, if by the help of God, you study the word, the entire Christian life becomes an exercise, a journey of an ever-increasing, ever-enlarging view of God, ever-clearer views of his perfection, and an ever-greater joy in being his. And faith grabs those truths, and they become the things that fashion and mold and press you into a certain shape and compel you to walk a certain path. They become the realities that change how you think. We're not talking about positive thinking and if you just think really great thoughts of God, then you'll feel really great about obeying God and you'll be a great person. We're talking about living in the realities of who God is and what he's done. And that means taking scripture seriously and living as if God does not lie. The Lord is my portion. I have sworn allegiance to him. I will plead for his help and set my feet quickly to obedience. Well, let's look at how big this Lord is that's our portion, and maybe it will help us today, and maybe it'll be a good pattern for us in the coming days. So where do we look for the Lord as our, per- our portion? The I am, the uncreated one, is my portion. Well, let's look at, what, let's look at some places where we can see him. Let's look at eternity past. Long before the Lord Jesus Christ walked dusty streets in Jerusalem or Judea or Galilee, long before Bethlehem, long before the cross or the tomb or the resurrection and ascension in eternity past. Can you, with God's help, stretch your little mind, make it a little more elastic? Can you imagine A timeless time where it is only God. There's no universe, no earth, no us, no no forefathers. There is only the triune God existing in perfect harmony. Father, Son, and Spirit. Not three gods, one God expressing himself in, in these three persons. It's a mystery, I know. We talked about this some months ago. And it's still a mystery. But can you go back to the timelessness of eternity past and consider that in that timeless millions and millions and millions of years would not scratch the first second on on the watch of God if God had a watch that kept time. Your Lord, your portion did not start in Bethlehem He is the God, the I am. And in particular, we think about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the second person of the Godhead. Not one third God, 
not second place in a hierarchy of three. God the Father is the biggest God, most important. God the Son is kind of second place, still pretty important. God the Spirit's third, and then you got angels and us. Listen to what one theologian says. There is one and only one God, eternally existing and fully expressed in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Godhead is, listen, equally God. And each is fully God. Not three gods, but three persons of one Godhead. Each person is equal in essence as each one possesses fully the same eternal divine nature. Yet each is also an eternal and distinct personal expression of that divine essence. All right, so if your brain exploded, no one would blame you. But where do we start? If you want to walk up to the Ten Commandments and see what God loves and hates, and you want to walk that path out of love for the king that has loved you and given his life for you, then don't start in Bethlehem. Start in eternity. There is in God three persons. And the second person of the triune God, the I am, possessing fully, equally, and eternally all the fullness of deity. He is my portion. I have vowed to obey him. I will plead for his help and I will set my feet on obedience, on the path of his commands. But there's a greater mystery. And that is that in eternity past, the triune God, we sang about it today, that there seems in Scripture to be these hints, it's not fully explained, that between Father, Son, and Spirit, we call them the eternal counsels, or the covenant of redemption, meaning that but long before He created, He had already in His heart always, the determination with infinite delight that the Son would be the Redeemer of a people who would be a bride, a kingdom that nobody could number from every part of the globe. And every one of them would be sinners that he had rescued in the purest form of grace. When you understand that the Lord the second person of the Trinity, the Son, eternally, is the delight of the Father, but He is also the choice of the Father as the champion of the sinner. And He comes to accomplish everything that the covenant promises. Here is the choice of infinite love and infinite wisdom. The second person of the triune God would become your portion. You can look at Him all through the Old Testament, but for the sake of time, let's just think of creation. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, John talks about, he starts where the others don't start. The others, you know, Matthew starts back with Old Testament history. You know, Mark starts with the coming of Christ. But John starts before creation. It's like John stands at Genesis 1.1, And instead of looking down through human time, you know, to Genesis 2, 3, 4, all the way until 
the birth of Christ, John turns back and looks into eternity past, before creation. And he talks about Christ, and this is one of the things he says. All things came into being through him, through our Lord. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. There was nothing. And the Father entrusts to the Son the work of creation. And your portion, Christian, spoke. And things came into existence. And your portion spoke. And things were molded into just what he wanted. So there are a lot of familiar statements from Genesis 1. I just wonder if we've thought that it's your portion that spoke these things. Genesis 1. Let me just give you a few. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. But John tells us it was the Father entrusting the Son with creation. So you can very accurately say, then the Lord, my Redeemer, my portion, my portion spoke, and light came into being. Another one. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. My portion said that. Another one. Then, let, then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, seeds, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their own kind and with seed in them. And it was so. And it was the Christian's portion that spoke that. And then there's another one. God made two lights. The greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens and he saw that it was good. It is your portion that placed the stars. Another, God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. Another, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Another, God said, let us create man in our own image. It is your portion. When you wake up in the morning and you see the blades of grass and you see the sky... Or if you walk out at night, and we've had particularly pretty nights, and you see the Milky Way, it is your portion who has done this. He spoke it. It existed when he spoke it and not before. When you see that, and that's the one that gave himself to you for a large, good portion, can you not say to him, I have sworn to keep your word. I will seek your favor with all my heart. And I will put my feet on your commands. Well, it's not just creation. The fact that it still is there today. The sustaining. Psalm 104. It's another picture of our portion. O Lord, the psalmist writes. How many are your works in wisdom. You've made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give it to them and they gather it up. You open your hand. They're satisfied with good. You hide your face. They are dismayed. You take away their spirit. They expire and return to dust. Guys, every living creature that you see from the unwanted mosquito to some beautiful thing in your backyard, the birds to the people that are walking down the roads or the child that you just put to bed, all living, breathing, animal life. It is being supported 
by your portion. Can you not look at things that are alive around you and say, it's my portion. That's the work of the Lord. And that Lord is my portion. And I have sworn to my allegiance to him. I will plead for his help and I will set my feet on his commands. Look at the incarnation where the living God, amazingly, in the womb of Mary, by the Spirit of God, the second person of the triune God, our portion, is united to humanity. Again, this isn't one-third God. This isn't a reflection of God. It's not a symbolic presence of God. Paul says that all the fullness of God dwells in the Son, Christ, bodily or actually. And you think of the things that were said at his birth or at the announcement of his birth. And we've talked about so many of them. Let me just give you Mary's statement. He has done mighty things with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty-handed. He has given help to his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. If they can say that at the announcement of the child, can you not 2,000 years later as a believer seeing the unfolding of God's faithfulness through the Son, can you not look at him, God and man in one, and say, that's the Lord? He's my portion? Large, good portion? I will plead for his help this moment. I will set my feet on his commands. If you think about the promises that were made to him during his ministry, they're prophesied much earlier. Psalm 2, all creation, rebelling against God. Let us cast off every restraint that he puts on us. It's a touching picture. Humanity, which is never united, is united. Such a warm-hearted, hallmark moment, you know. All of humanity comes together lays aside all their differences because they have one thing in common. They would prefer that they were God and that the real God would have no say over their life. So they want to throw off his restraints, his law, his command. And God shocks us in Psalm 2 because it says that he laughs at the rebellion of humanity. Not a funny laugh, but a mocking laugh. What Psalm 2 doesn't say is, God calls a council of the angels and says, okay, guys, time to tool up for a war. Time to set the machinery of a military campaign in place. We've got to deal with the rebellion of humanity. All the earth seems against me. And so... God shifts the plans. He goes from peacetime to wartime rule. Do, we, do you read any of that ever in the Bible? God laughs and just keeps doing what he has always been doing. And the reason he is so calm is because it's too late for humanity to cast their vote for a different king. Because he says, I have already appointed a king for you. 
my son. God has chosen one to rule you, and he has done this, one writer says, in defiance of mankind's deepest longings for self-rule. And though Herod, the king of the Jews, and the Jews and Pilate all reject Christ, Pilate does say over at the crucifixion, he puts the sign over Jesus' head, king of the Jews, but he does that out of spite. He's mocking the Jews. This is your king. You weak little people, you're worthless. And here's your king. We're Rome. You're Israel. And when the Jews see the sign, they're offended, not because their Messiah is crucified, but because they're too proud for Christ and they see no value in Christ. And so they say, no, 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 do not write king of the Jews, but you need to get up there and add some words, right? He said, he claimed to be king of the Jews, but we will not have this man rule over us. Do you remember in John chapter six, after great miracles, the crowds gather around Christ and they want to force him to be their king. They want to grab him, kidnap him, put him on a throne, put a crown on his head and say, this is our king, this miracle working man of God. And Christ will not let them because God, his father, has prepared a crown for him that no nation will ever be able to remove. When you see Christ promised the nations, And in Psalm 2, when Jesus says, I'll tell you the decree of the Lord. He said to me, today you have been begotten. You are my only begotten son. I have given you the nations. All you have to do is ask. And you will rule them either, we know, by his love or by his justice or by his wrath. He will either rescue or he will destroy But do you notice in Psalm 2 that Jesus, who has to win this kingdom, he's not frantic either. He's not suddenly, he's not calling for all of his people to to get together and to arm up and we got to figure out how to conquer this rebellious world. He's just as calm as the father because the father said to him, all you have to do is ask. Have you ever met a person who, if they only asked the uncreated God He would hand them everything to do whatever they want with it. Well, of course not. But the Lord, the God-man, who is the portion of the believer, all he has to do is ask. When you see him being talked to like that by the Father, and you realize what that means for the future of humanity, of the new creation, of God putting enemies under his feet, can you not look at that and say, that's the Lord. Psalm 2 is Christ. That's my portion. I vowed to keep his word. I plead his help. I lean hard on him. And I set my feet daily on a path of obedience. Do you need more pictures? You think of the cross The one sinless servant becomes the curse and God looks upon him and the father sees him as the concentration 
of all that offends him and all the sin of all his people through the ages is on him as if he had delighted in those sins, as if he had thought of them, as if he had planned how to do them, as if he had cuddled them in his heart and enjoyed them and been polluted by them. And the sinless lamb of God is treated as if he had been the sinner. And when God crushes him, and then Colossians 2 says, he is crucified, our crimes are written above him. But that's not the end of the story. He's raised and he says it's like a public humiliation of every one of God's foes and every one of your foes. It's like he tramples every foe as he comes from a grave and returns to his throne. When you see the resurrection or the crucifixion or the ascension, when you hear Psalm 24, when it, this wonderful picturesque you know, psalm describing the return of Christ to his throne, and you read where it says, you know, throw open your gates and the king of glory will come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. It's speaking of the Messiah, the God-man. And when you see that psalm and when you read Revelation 5 and you see him take the scroll from the father's hand and sit at the father's right hand on the throne of heaven to rule over everything. And when you read in chapter one, that he is among his churches to do them good. And when you read in chapter 15, when he is judging the earth and the angels are singing his continual praise as the one who deserves to be feared. And then in chapter 21, when he's made a new creation and he says, I am the alpha and omega. I'm the very first. I'm the last. The Christian is the only one that can look and say, I know he's my portion. I have one gift and it's everything good and it's mine and it's large. And now what do I want to do? I have vowed allegiance to this king. I will lean hard on him and I will set my feet on the clearest path of love. I am compelled, like the Apostle Paul, to show my love by obedience. You cannot rightly approach any of the Ten Commandments without going through verse 2 of Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who saved you from the house of slavery. And if you watch the psalmist in Psalm 119, 57 through 60, and it's like you get to see him walk up to verse 2, and he shouts out, I know the I am is my portion, large, good. And then you see how he responds to that. How? Could any believer come to any part of the Bible where God describes what pleases him? How could you come to it gloomy, hesitant? But we do. If we're not thinking correctly, 
We come to it like a kid that's already in trouble. You know, you, you know you're already in trouble. And then your mom or your dad say, uh, so if you're me, John, come here. And you think, oh, I'm already in trouble. Now what? And you think they're just going to tell you, you forgot to do this and you forgot to do this. And the, the list of where I failed is just going to get bigger. And then the, you know, the grounding is going to get longer. Is that how you approach? Or like Paul, do you say, I am compelled by the love of God, by his being my portion. And I grab that and I make it my food, my atmosphere, my, my unalterable environment. I have him. Then, like the psalmist, I can say, I seek your commands. I want to know what's next. I want to walk the next moment in a happy obedience with the king. But what if God is not your portion? I mean, he's your creator, but he's not your portion. And so all the stuff we just read, that, that has nothing to do with you. It's all you looking at a next door neighbor and you're saying, but that's not, that's not my family. That's your family. Why not come to him based on his royal invitations, his gospel commands, come to me, all who are, and I will. Why not take his own handwriting to him that's been delivered to you? And why not say to him, will you be my portion? I don't deserve anything from you but wrath. And it's hard to believe, but, but you've helped me. And I take your word as something more than a fairy tale. And because of what you've said to sinners like me, I lay everything before your throne. All the weapons, all the arguments, all the bargaining that I used to do with God. It's, I'm ashamed of it. It's all in the dirt. And I grab hold of you. And I choose you as my only, my good, my infinite portion forever. I am his, he is mine. And then you look at life and something is strangely different. It's like you're alive and the eyes are open and the heart is warmed and the feet are free and you get to run through this old world with a new life and that life is characterized by the statement of the psalmist. I have vowed allegiance to this king. I will plead for his favor according to his word. He promised it. And I will set my feet quickly without delay to the next command. This is life. There's no reason to hear all these things and to be a stranger to a God who has given his son to be the portion of only one type of person. Those that horribly, shamefully have rejected him as their portion. So why not break your heart and come to him and get the sinner's friend to be more than just words on a page?
to you. Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.